listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. There is something that everyone must go through after being saved through Jesus Christ. We will go through a time when God will train us, just like He trained the Israelites for 40 years. We can call that living in the wilderness. This is the time spent by the Israelites after being saved from the land of Egypt and before entering Canaan, their promised land. There are people currently living through hardship and adversity that are walking through the wilderness, relying on the Lord through their hard times. Even I went through times of wilderness when I moved to Arizona with no family or friends. That was when I was able to experience the grace of God and realize that there was no difference between me and the Israelites who constantly complained to God. God did not ignore the Israelites and through His grace brought the Israelites to their promised land. This made me realize how much God loves me with the grace that He shows me every day. There is something about the Israelites that I can relate to in my life. That is that they often complained about what to eat and drink. If you look at Exodus chapters 15 to 17, about two to three months after fleeing the land of Egypt, the Israelites complained and turned against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites complained as they yearned for the days in Egypt when they were able to eat all the meat and bread that they wanted. There are many of you that look at the Israelites and ask, how could they complain after witnessing the miracles and grace of God with their own eyes? But for some reason, I am able to understand and relate to how the Israelites were feeling. Can't you? Don't we complain in the dead heat of summer when we are thirsty and not able to have a drink? To make it worse, the Israelites were eating the food they brought with them from Egypt for about two and a half months. They must have worried about what to eat for the next meal as their supplies were depleting. They must have not had enough food left to be full. That's why I think it makes sense that they were missing the time they ate meat and drank water in Egypt. I think I would have been hungry for food and thirsty for water just like the Israelites. Help me remember Your spirit is for me 
Egypt and starting their life in the wilderness, the Israelites began to complain. They began to yearn for the times they had food to eat in Egypt. Even though they were all complaining, God thankfully provides them with water and manna for food. I began to question something in my heart when I read all this. God is all-knowing, and He knows all the people's hearts and thoughts. then why did he let his people go hungry and thirsty, knowing the fact that they would complain to him about food and water? If God provided them with food and water, then they would not have complained, and he would not have had to listen to all their complaints. This also happened again in Exodus, after two years of living in the wilderness. This is when they are living in Mount Sinai. This time, the Israelites complained more in detail compared to the first time. Let's read Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. The people again yearned for the food they had in Egypt. In verse 10, it says that each man wept at the doorway of his tent. They probably cried because they remember the time they ate all that food and wanted to eat the food again. When I read this in the Bible, I could only think why God didn't give his people some fish. God was able to perform miracles where fish could be available in the wilderness. It couldn't have been hard to feed his people cucumbers, leeks, onions, and garlic. How could this be hard when he split the Red Sea, made manna fall from the sky, and allowed water to fall out of from the rocks? I received the answers to all these questions as I continued to read the Bible. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember all the way which the Lord, your God, has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's right. God did not provide his people with all the meat when they wanted to eat meat and water when they were thirsty. He did not say, here you go, have some meat or have some water. 
That was because he wanted to teach his people that they could not live off just food and water alone. He wanted his people to be humbled by letting them go hungry and wanted to teach them that there was something more important than living off of bread alone. God wanted to teach his people through experience and importance of living by every word that came from the mouth of the Lord. And he wanted his people to realize that their spirits would be filled with God's words alone.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is In the Beginning, Part 2, based on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Mark was written to Romans. Luke was written to Greeks. But John, the Gospel of John, is written to the whole world. And throughout the Gospel of John, you see references to the world. To the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's this continual reference to the saving work of Jesus for the whole world. And yet, there's, there are hundreds, of, there's over a hundred references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of John, which show us that he's well aware of his Jewish audience as well. The invitation in the other Gospels seems to be more come and and hear, but in the Gospel of John, the invitation is come and see. Come on, look at who Jesus is. It is my favorite Gospel. I love the Gospel of John, and uh, I'm, I'm like so excited. Why is it written? Look at verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Two reasons the book is given written we're told one is that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that is a clear message in this book that Jesus is God's son he is God the son and secondly that you may believe in him place your faith in him and be saved so it's a very much written as an evangelistic book it's very much written as a book uh, proclaiming the deity of Christ and showing uh, through what Jesus did that he is indeed God the Son. So with that being said, let's, let's go to John and, and let's look at the uh, first chapter here. Let's look at the first chapter, John chapter 1. And we're going to begin with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word said was God I just want to stop right there because at the time that John was writing Gnosticism was a movement that was beginning to gain momentum in the world the Gnostics were the ones who were known later several hundred years later for writing pseudo gospels false gospels They would write fake gospels in the name of apostles. They would write, for instance, there's a gospel of Thomas. There's a gospel of Philip. There's been a more recently discovered gospel of Judas. And these, these books, claiming to be written by men who were long dead when these books were written, are, we know, are, are fakes, they're forgeries, they 
are so unlike the scripture that you read that there is no comparison whatsoever. In fact, I think just a week ago, I, was, I read the Gospel of Philip. I wanted to see, you know, I hadn't read it before, and I thought, well, what's all the hoopla about? And it was uh, an interesting read. Uh, I'm glad I read it because when I compared it, in the light of the scripture, in fact, you can get the message, the CD message, um, or DVD, rather. No, you can get it either, I guess, but the CD is what I'm thinking. You can pick it up in the tape ministry or listen to it, MP3, or you know, listen to it online. It's called The Women in Jesus' Life. It was a message in response to the book, The Da Vinci Code. But as I was reading it, I thought, you know, this is so contrary to everything that the Bible teaches, and it's a direct attack upon Christianity. Gnosticism was just that. It was, it was a, a system of belief that believed that the body was evil, that um, didn't really matter what, what you did in the body because it was only the spirit that mattered, that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That, well, he came in the flesh, but the Christ wasn't in the flesh. Teaching that... Uh, that Jesus Christ could not have been really man and really God at the same time. And so John, John, I know, led by the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks in a Genesis-like way here, doesn't he, in the very beginning. And magnificently and eloquently simply states, as does Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here he, he lets us know that God who created the heavens and the earth was none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, who was this word? Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that was in the beginning with God, the word who was God, the word who is God and who created the whole world is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no discrepancy with what Jesus taught there because Jesus said here in the Gospel of John, we'll see later, unless you believe that I am, and he, there he's claiming the divine title, the I am that I am. He says, you will die in your sins. So now the Bible teaches us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the earth was without form and void, darkness covered the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. Then later in Genesis chapter 1, you'll see God saying, let us make man in our own image. Now who is God talking to when he says, let us make man in our own image? He's not talking to the angels, is he? He's speaking among the Trinity, and though the word Trinity isn't found in the Scripture, the truth of the triunity of God is found in the Scripture. 
It's not debated that Father God is God indeed. Nor is it generally debated that the Holy Spirit is God. The New Testament then presents to us that Jesus, God's Messiah, his Son, is God. The Old Testament does that as well. I think of Isaiah 9-6, which says, The wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. He's going to be, you know, he's, he's, uh, he is God. In the Old Testament, we're, we see that as well. So there, there is this Father is God, Spirit is God, the Son is God, yet there is only one God. When the Bible says in the beginning God created, it's the word Elohim, which is a plural word. It's not the, a, a simple a singular word, but it, it's a uniplural in Hebrew. It, it's the idea of a, a singular that in, in, within it has a plurality. Our word congregation would be something like that. I mean, you don't have a congregation of one. Our, if we say, I have a cluster of grapes, that implies within the thinking you have more than one. You don't have a cluster of one grape, do you? And so there is, within the word, the I am on the end of Hebrew words implies a plurality. It could be translated literally in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth, but the Bible does not teach there is more than one God. It teaches that God is one, and yet he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct personalities, yet sharing the same holy attributes and the same essence and so the new testament tells us that jesus was the word he is the one who spoke the word now the book of colossians chapter one it's interesting how this message overlaps with what i was teaching this morning colossians chapter one way now to the right in verses uh Verses 15, 16, 17 dovetails with what the Apostle John is teaching. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was born because and didn't exist once before. The title firstborn means preeminent one. He is the firstborn the number one, the chief of all. That's the way the term was used, the preeminent one over something. For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus is the creator. Everything holds together in him. Everything found his origin in him. He is the word. He is the one who spoke the world into existence. And isn't it significant, gang, that he is the one who has redeemed the world as well? We're his, not only by right of creation. We are his by right of redemption. He's paid for us, and it's just an incredible thought. In the beginning was the Word. The 
The ancient Hebrews, going back to John 1, the ancient Hebrews thought of one's words as an extension of his or her person. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words were an extension of you. And this idea here is, is in the beginning was the logos, was the word. The Hebrew word is, uh, the Greek word is logos. The word, God's, the extension of God, the visible extension that we can see of God, his word made flesh. God can say, I am love, and we go, what does that mean? I'm just, what does that mean? I'm holy, I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm true, I'm faithful. What does that mean? But then God comes and we see his word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has explained himself in Jesus. Isn't that just a wonderful idea? Want to know who God is? You have to know Jesus. And this is life eternal, that you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He is the only true representation of God. And he is the clearest representation of God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being by him. We read that now in Colossians. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus has created the whole world. He is Lord of the world. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. Verse 4, he is the origin of all life. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And verse 5, note this, the light shines in the darkness. The Greek actually says, and the light keeps on shining in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness, that is the lack of light, the lack of illumination, did not comprehend the light. Again, Jesus is the one who says in the beginning, let there be what? Light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. I love the Hebrew words. It was, it was the Hebrew says, tohu vavohu. Doesn't that sound like without form and void? Looks like, sounds like one of my daughter's bedrooms, actually. Tohu vavohu. Just shut the door. It's so much easier to parent if you have doors that shut on kids' rooms. And God said, Jesus said, let there be light. And so, verse Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Not only light of the, 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 the cosmos, the world in terms of the universe, but light spiritually as well. And the darkness, he keeps on shining, by the way. He keeps on shining. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, comprehended is one translation. Maybe you have a, a marginal reference in verse 5. Comprehended can mean overpower. It can mean to keep something down. And he's saying that the darkness could not keep down, could not suppress the light. Amen. 
Darkness cannot suppress the light. There is no struggle that Jesus has over darkness. You have to understand, I came from a spiritual background where they taught a great controversy between God and Satan. A battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Okay, but... And then I've even seen pictures that were like Jesus with a lightsaber with Satan. I'm thinking, you know, this is going way too far with this thing. Because Jesus is God. Satan is a fallen angel, created thing. There is no big battle. I mean, there might be... There might be complaint, there might be some fighting, but God could, if he chose, eradicate Satan. There's no big deal. And we say, oh Lord, please, you have to understand, the light of God and his truth is so much more powerful than darkness. Can you turn off the lights for me? Thanks. Okay. We're in darkness. Now, darkness is dark. Darkness is a place that can lead to stumbling. It can lead to fear. Your imagination can go wild in the dark, can it? I was telling the, the folks a couple of services that <laughs> the other night there was this big crash boom in my, outside. And, and I couldn't tell where it was from unless he says, Oh, there's a big noise outside. Whoa, whoa, why are you telling me? <laughs> Big, brave, what am I going to do with a noise like that? <clears throat> go see what it is. So I go out, and uh, it's out in the front. It sounded like it was in the front yard. <laughs> I'm going, oh, Lord, protect me. Send your angels, protect me, Lord, protect me. I go out in the front. Fortunately, there was nothing there but it was dark. And then my daughter says, Dad, Dad, it's, it, I think it's down the hall. It's in the front room down there. Oh, no. It's in the house, and the house is dark. Kind of creepy looking out in the dark side yard right now, and I'm thinking, oh, man. I'm walking down the hallway, and then I you know, there's that moment, oh, and I flipped on the light. There was nothing there. Praise God. But you know, I didn't, I didn't hear when I was about ready to get rid of the darkness. I didn't hear this, oh, 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 oh struggle, fight, bang, bang. You know, there was, there was no struggle. Darkness has to give in to light. Turn on the lights. Whoa, 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 whoa. I think we missed the fight. And turn them off one more time. Now you, you get ready. You wait. Is there going to be a big fight? Is it going to take dark? Is it going to be hard for the light to break through? Let's see. Do it one more time. Oh. Oh. Didn't even... I didn't see anything, did you? You see, when Jesus says, let there be what? Actually, he didn't even say that. Genesis says, he simply said, light be. And as he's speaking, light is happening. Do you understand that? It wasn't like, let there, like, please, please let there. 
Would somebody let, please? Who's to let? Who lets there be light? That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, God said, light be. And there's, it's just, turn off the lights, please. Now, I'm going to say light be, and as I say that, you do just what the Lord did. Light be. And there's, it happens. Whoa. That's cool, isn't it? And when the Lord says that in a life, it's awesome. John begins the gospel by letting us know that the light of life has come. Jesus Christ has arrived. He's here. The creator, the life giver, the light that shone in the darkness has come and he invites us to come and see. Come and see. God's turned on the light spiritually so the whole world can see what he is like. And I really, really believe that when you get a good look at Jesus, he draws you right to himself. I think, I think people have misconceptions of Christ. They have misconceptions of, of salvation and all. But when you really get a good look at Jesus, that's what we're going to have over the next weeks and months. And we're just going to see the Lord draw us close to him and draw those who don't know him to him. It'll be a wonderful time.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. During our last episode, we studied Jesus' words on salvation. Today, we're going to talk about prayer. Jesus told the Jewish people not to ask for salvation, pray, or feast for public acknowledgement. Jesus told us to beware of practicing righteousness or asking for salvation just to be noticed by other men. He told us to do things in secret. Otherwise, we have no reward with our Father who is in heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5-8, through 8, Jesus said, When you pray, you are not to be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus tells us of two things that we should never do when praying. First, Jesus tells us not to pray like a hypocrite who is praying just to be noticed by other men. Second, Jesus tells us not to pray like the Gentiles, having meaningless repetition in our prayers. When we studied about salvation last time, Jesus pointed out the mistakes of the Pharisees who were practicing righteousness and asking for salvation just to be noticed by other men. Jesus told us to do all that in secret. Jesus tells us the same thing about prayer. He tells us not to be like hypocrites by praying only in front of other people. As it says in verse 5, the hypocrites like to pray in synagogues and on street corners to be noticed by other people. Jesus tells us that they have already received their reward. Their reward is the praises from the other people and the feeling of pride. Jesus tells us, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This doesn't mean that you should not pray in the synagogues or on street corners or to pray only in secret behind closed doors. Just as Jesus always found a quiet place to pray, it should be a given that we should find a quiet place to pray ourselves. We are able to pray in our church and even on busy street corners with lots of people. Jesus is teaching us that where we pray does not matter, but how and with what is in our hearts when we pray is what's important. Jesus is teaching how wrong it was for the Pharisees and how they were hypocrites for doing everything or praying just to be noticed by other people. So the importance of the inner room is to pray to God. The purpose and objective for praying should be to God alone. We should never pray 
just to be seen by other people or to be satisfied with ourselves. That is why Jesus tells us to go into our inner rooms, close the door, not to be seen by anyone, and pray quietly to God. God is the only one that can reward us with answers to our prayers. This happens because God is the only one who hears our prayers and no one else knows of our prayers. Is it not amazing that God who has created and takes care of everything in this whole world listens and answers prayers of the people as small as us? The fact that our great God enters our inner room to listen and meet us is amazing. After Jesus tells us not to be like the hypocrites and pray only to be noticed by others, he tells us in verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentile do. To use meaningless repetition is to pray without thought and meaning to our words. Why did the Gentiles use meaningless repetition when they prayed? It is because the Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. They worshipped false gods created with their own hands. They called on their God the way they liked and pray the way they feel is right. That is why they believe the more they speak, the more they will seem sincere and their prayers will be answered. In the end, they are not praying to the one true God, but praying meaningless words to their lesser God and benefiting themselves alone. If we also use meaningless repetition in our prayers, it may mean we do not really know God at all. This means that we do not know God is alive and is able to have a personal relationship with us. For example, how would it be if we tell our mother, who is next to us, Mom, I'm hungry, repeating the statements many times like a robot. If we truly know our mother, we would never talk to our mother in that way. If we truly know our God and that He is with us and listening to our prayer, then we do not need to pray in meaningless repetition. That is why Jesus tells us not to pray in meaningless repetition like the hypocrites. He tells us not to take after them. God already knows everything we need, so when we pray, we do not have to use so many meaningless words. And we should not try to persuade God with our sincerity and eagerness, because this is how the hypocrites pray to God. I'm sure there are some of you asking the question, if God knows everything, if God knows everything that we need, then why should we pray? When you talk to your husband or wife, or child, or friend, you are building a relationship with them. And so it is with prayer we talk with God, making our requests known to Him. It draws us closer to Him and grows us in Him. It is through prayer that we develop that intimacy with God that our souls long for. And it is through prayer that we let go of our own beliefs and leave everything to God. This is why we must pray even though God already knows everything we need. Jesus teaches us how not to pray by telling us not to take after the hypocrites and the Gentiles. He tells us not to take after the hypocrites who pray only to be noticed by others and he tells us not to take after the Gentiles who pray with meaningless repetition. Jesus also teaches us how and what to pray for. We will learn in the next lesson about how Jesus teaches us to pray. 
Today, we learned about prayer through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We should not rely on our eagerness to pray, but only on God, who is alive and knows everything that we already need. I thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our series with the Sermon on the Mount.
we see similarities in our lives compared to the lives of the Israelites. When something happens that we do not like, we complain to God and thank Him as soon as the problem is solved. But we complain to God again soon after and blame Him for all the other things that happen in our lives that we do not like. This is why the lives of the Israelites were very similar to how we live our lives. When we do not receive the answers to our prayers, when our lives do not go according to our plans, or when we are not able to attain the things we desire, we complain. There are times that we complain to God about not providing us with enough money as we compare our lives to others. But when our all-knowing God does not give us answers or provide us with all the things we want, there is a reason for everything that He does. Just like what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The reason why He does not give us all that we want is to humble us and to make us realize that we cannot live on those things alone. God wants us to realize that we must live on His words alone. Do all of you know and understand God's meaning behind all this? Do you understand God's plan for all this? If we know the reason why we are being trained by God, then it will be easier for us to pass His tests. 
We must learn that it is not our own motives and wants that will fulfill us, but God's words that will fill our spirits. I hope that all of us will understand that it is not by knowledge alone, but through experience and training that we will realize what is important in filling our spirits. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. Come and fill my heart